It is our joy this morning, once again, to go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. I invite you to go ahead and turn there with me in uh, your copy of the Word of God, Matthew, chapter 10. We've been kind of working up to this. Uh, Chapters 8 and 9 were showing us kind of models and pictures and uh, examples, if you will, of biblical ministry. And now, moving into chapter 10, Jesus is now going to give instructions to, uh, to the church to be sent out. We are set apart to be sent out. And so, uh, so we're going to be looking at chapter 10 uh, for a couple weeks, and we're going to pause for Advent, and, uh, and then we're going to come back to it. Uh, I haven't quite got the order down yet, but uh, just kind of thinking and praying through that. But I know that is the plan, so... Uh, Let's go ahead and stand together. We're just going to read four verses, and I invite you this morning to read along with me from the board as uh, we read from the Word of God this morning, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Our Father, this we pray this morning as we read and explain your scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would move me aside and that you would speak to your people as you see fit. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when I invited you to read that with me, I didn't think about those couple of names that were in there. So uh, (laughs) that's okay. You did good. You did really good. So let me ask you a question. How many of you guys have been to Branson, Missouri before? Maybe it's easier to say, how many of you have not been to Branson, Missouri before? Anyone? Yeah, that's probably a little better. So, you know, I, I grew up in, in Arkansas, as you know, but, um, and I always heard about Branson, but I had never gone there until I came here. And since I've been here, I've been there seven times. And four of them have been in the last six months. <laughs> so uh, over the summer, there was a youth trip to Waterworld, and so that was fun. And then and then uh, about two months ago, three months ago, something like that, there was a pastors and wives uh, kind of retreat that we were able to go to, and you guys were graciously uh, allowed us to go to, and so we're certainly thankful for that. And then a couple of weeks ago, I had my niece's wedding that was there, and then we were there this weekend again uh, with the Sharp family, and we got to do Black Friday. And um, I can tell you, of all the times that were there, I have never seen a crowd like this. And, and if you've uh, tried to get a hold of me all day Friday, I am sorry. Uh, our phones, the towers were completely overloaded, I imagine, and none of us had service. And, and when we did, it kind of went in and out. But, uh, but, you know, most of the time when I'm in Branson, I'm kind of, I'm driving, I'm thinking about, you know, where to, uh, where I'm going, I'm thinking about the destination, and, and this time, guys, I kid you not, even when we came out of Silver Dollar City and going out of the Strip, it was still back-to-back, bumper-to-bumper cars. And I've never really gotten an opportunity to take in the sights of Branson. And so as I'm sitting there on the Highway 76 parking lot, 
I, <laughs> I put my, uh, I, there were several times I just put my car in park and just kind of waited, you know, and waited and waited and waited. And I was actually able to take the sights in and, and kind of see what was all around. And, um, and I can tell you that I, I felt maybe something, maybe just a twinge of what maybe Paul felt when he walked through the strip of Athens and saw all the monuments to, uh, to false gods and such. And I'm not saying it's bad to go to Branson, but let me just, let me just give you a little taste of what I'm talking about. Um, for instance, that night as we were waiting for the cars to move, I happened to notice off to the side, there was a psychic reading place, tarot cards and such, and there was someone outside smoking a cigarette waiting for what I can only assume was his turn to go inside. And I just wanted to open my window and scream to him, there's better guidance. There's a better way. There was, uh, you know, you have all these museums that are dedicated. There's a toy museum that I really wanna go to, but Roxanne hasn't let me yet. But uh, there's, a, there's a toy museum, and I, it, just, it just reminds me of, of all the toys when I was a kid that I just had to have, right? That, that most of them today are probably sitting in a landfill or disintegrated somewhere. All these uh, various Hollywood museums that are dedicated to Hollywood idols and such. And I saw uh, there were two churches on the Strip that were just right there on the Strip. And the first one is a member of a denomination, and I don't know about this individual church, but the first one is a member of a denomination that has completely given in to the moral revolution of our culture. And they are, now again, I don't know about this individual church, but, but uh, it just reminded me how this church has completely surrendered their responsibility to be faithful to the word. And then there's another church, and this is a huge church. This is like a big mega church, and they've got this billboard right there, uh, right there on the highway, and it's got videos of of kind of various parts of their service and such. And you know, I've been doing this long enough to where my theological sniff test is is a little more accurate than what it used to be, and um, and I just got a kind of sense of what it was. And sure enough, I verified it uh, online that this is a Word of Faith Prosperity Church. And, um, and just completely surrendered to the gospel of greed and the, uh, all kinds of false prophecies and such like that. In fact, uh, when I looked online, I noticed that Ken Copeland was one of their guest speakers not even a few months ago. And uh, if you don't know Ken Copeland, consider yourself blessed. He's, uh, he's the, he is the premier theologian of that heresy of the prosperity gospel. And so, uh, so just kind of give you an idea of what all is going on. As we were waiting to watch a show, there was a mother uh, that was sitting behind us that was getting on to her kid. And we've all been there as parents. You try not to be, you try not to be, you know, real hard on parents. We've all had those days, you know, the, where you're the parent you swore you would never be before you had kids, you know that? And, um, and anyway, but, but this parent was literally cursing out her children with, with words that I would not disgrace the sacred desk with. Vulgar, vulgarity. Um, and, and then as we were waiting for the show, I was sitting beside this old man, a, a guy from Wisconsin, and he started talking to me, and he was telling me about how, um, how his salvation testimony 
only he was saying to me that the only place in the Bible where you will find the true gospel of salvation is in the book of Acts. And all these other preachers are lying because they're not going to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is where you find the gospel. Nowhere else you can find the gospel. You must be baptized. You must speak in tongues. You must do all of this. He didn't realize that he was speaking to someone that he thought was one of those lying pastors. You know, I felt something of, of what it must have felt like for Paul to walk through Athens and, and to see all of these monuments to false gods and false gospels and all of this other stuff. And it just caught my attention. It just caught my attention. I felt maybe a little twinge of what Jesus felt in Matthew chapter nine, verse 36. We saw this a couple weeks ago. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I looked at all of these people and just thought, what lost sheep? What lost sheep? And beloved, this is the world that Jesus entered into. He didn't enter into the world of my little, of, of, of little house on the prairie, or I started to say my little pony. I guess he didn't enter in that world either, but <laughs> I'm getting my littles messed up. But uh, um, he didn't enter into the world of little house on the prairie. He didn't enter into the world of the Brady Bunch where all of our problems are solved in 30 minutes. He didn't, he didn't, he entered into our world that has real people who are real sheep, who are really lost, and they really need a shepherd. And we see this lostness all around us, all the time. And it takes all different kinds of, of forms and all different kinds of pictures. But at the end of the day, it's all the same lie and it's all going to the same place. And Christ has called his church into the same world that he went into this world. And he called us to carry on his, his mission, to carry on his kingdom, to impact our world for his kingdom and his gospel. And this morning, I pray that we'll begin to get a sense of God's call to impact this world for the gospel of Christ. And as we look back on the sec look back at chapter nine, we were already there, but I wanna look back there for just one more second because that verse ends with Jesus commanding his people, the, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And it is not a coincidence that Matthew chapter 10, verses one through four, immediately follow that passage. Because beloved, understand that Jesus commands to send laborers out into the harvest and Jesus has answered that prayer his answer to that prayer is the church. His answer to that prayer is the church. There is no other answer. There is no plan B. There is no contingency. The church is Christ's divine plan to bring him and his answers into the world. Ephesians chapter two, verses 19 and 20, he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And look what he says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And here we find the laying of that foundation, that we are to build upon this foundation that is being laid right here. 
Jesus is calling his 12 apostles, he himself being the cornerstone. And now he is giving us the foundation of this call. So beloved, this morning we must continue in this passage to the mission that Christ set so long ago with his apostles. We are called to continue that mission even now, 2,000 years later. So how do we build upon what they did? We can't build any other foundation. We can't lay any other cornerstone. How can we build on what they did? I want you to see that we recognize that as a church, we share three characteristics with these apostles. Three characteristics. We're called as they were, we're united as they were, and we are empowered as they were. And so let's look at this text. Uh, You say, Randy, how much can you get from a list of names? Actually, quite a bit, so let's go there. Matthew chapter 10, verse one, I want you to see, first of all, that that we as a church, we must continue on this mission that they began, that Christ set in his apostles. We are to continue it on. How? Because we are called as they were. We are called as they were. He says in verse one that Jesus called to himself his 12 disciples. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. Now, I wanna, I wanna stop right there. It says that Jesus called to him. In other words, he called them to himself, or, or I really like, I think the NASB translation's better here, and I know some of the others say it too. He summoned his 12 disciples, or summoning his 12 disciples. It's, it's a call, typically speaking, when this word is used, it is used of a king who is calling his servants to do something. He's calling them to a task. Throughout the New Testament, it's this calling. I know we talk about the calling of salvation a lot, but throughout this, the New Testament, that word calling that we typically think of, like Romans chapter eight, for example, those whom he, um, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. That's not the same word. The word we're talking about here is a term that is used that when a king calls one of his servants to a particular mission or a particular task. We saw this in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. When Paul had seen the vision, uh, it says, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia in concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel there also. And so typically speaking, it is, being, it is a summoning to a job. It's summoning to a task. It's, it's not just a call to discipleship or salvation, but this is a call to mission, a summons to spiritual warfare. This is, this is a bugle call, if you will. And so why only 12? Why only 12? We know that There were others that were following Jesus at the time. For example, we know that there were crowds everywhere Jesus went. We see in Acts chapter one that there were two guys at least who were with with Christ from the baptism of John all the way up to his resurrection. One of them is named Joseph. The other one is named Matthias. And Matthias is gonna become one of the 12. We know from Luke that there were women that were following Christ the whole time. And so, so why only 12 Why only 12? I want you to notice here that in Acts chapter one, verses 21 and 22, 
He says, and so one of the men, they're, they're looking to replace Judas Iscariot, and one of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, and watch this, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taking up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I want you to understand that this is a kind of a college of official authorized witnesses, if you will. It is those who are going to carry the message of Christ and they're going to be the authoritative uh, carrying on of that tradition. And by the way, I know there are many today who are self-proclaimed apostles. Uh, I don't think they were around when uh, John the Baptist was there and I don't think they were around when Jesus rose from the dead. I would usually make crack some art joke at this point, but I'm not gonna do that today. <laughs> but um, uh, that's why we don't have apostles today. That's why this was a limited thing. It, it's not something that was transferred to other people. This needs to be said. That's the reason why we don't have apostles. But I want you to note that one of these men must become with us a witness. Look, look back at Ephesians 2.20. Why is this so important? Because they are becoming the foundation by which everything else is going to be built on. You see, when the Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born, what did they devote themselves to over and over? To the apostles' doctrine and prayer and fellowship and the breaking of bread. And so this is a foundational aspect that we see. The gift of apostleship or the office of apostleship, we should say, is a foundational office of the church that is no longer here today. But praise God, Paul, uh, Jesus assigned 12 men to this task. And they are going to carry on that tradition. So once the Holy Spirit comes down, these 12 become the leaders of the church under Christ the King. So, so what? This is interesting trivia, Randy, but what does this have to do with me? Well, imagine for a moment that you're in the army. And perhaps it's wartime and the major general commands your battalion to go take a section of the city. And you say something like, well, I know what the general said, but that only applies to my captain. That really doesn't apply to me, so I'm not gonna go do that. What's gonna happen? Probably a court-martial. Probably because you're going AWOL, Right? The fact of the matter is, is that the fact that, that when the major general gives your captain a order, that becomes, if you are in that company, that becomes your order, right? And in the same way that Jesus is giving his 12 apostles who are the foundation of the church, he is giving them these marching orders. These become our orders. These become the very things that he is calling us to do. The way that what Christ commanded the apostles to do in this text is going to become the commands to the church throughout the New Testament, throughout history. Christ is training his apostles to become the church. And in the same way that Christ summoned the apostles to take his kingdom into the field for harvest, he has called us to do the same. Nothing has changed. Now, some of the methods have changed, which we're gonna see that here in a few minutes. Not in the same way, not at the same time. There's going to be development to our call throughout the New Testament. But the call is the same. Go and preach the kingdom. Go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We're called as we were, as they were. But there's another aspect to this. And, and we're gonna come back to the rest of verse one here in just a few minutes. But he, he has called the church. But I want you to understand that he's not called us as lone rangers. He hasn't called a parachurch ministry based on a charismatic personality. He hasn't called an organization. He has called the church. In other words, he has called all of us to this mission. And so we're not only called as they were, but we are united as they were. We are united as they were. And I want you to look on to this list, and I, we've already read the list. I'm not going to read it again. But, uh, but there's a couple of uh, just really interesting things that, that I want you to see here. Um, and just to kind of set this up, many of you know that before I really surrendered to the ministry, I had, a, I had kind of an idea that I wanted to go into uh, Christian filmmaking in Arkansas at that time. Wasn't exactly a hub for learning how to do filmmaking. And so, um, so the closest I had was theater. And so I was in Arkadelphia, and I was part of two theater companies, one with the college, not OBU. I went to Brand X. I went to Henderson State. And then, uh, and then the other, um, and then the other one was with the community, and I was part of two different uh, theater companies there. And uh, there was another guy. They knew me by my real name. My real name is John. Randy is a nickname based off of my middle name. My name is John, and they knew me as John. Uh, the problem was is that there was another John in the group, and they were constantly, you know, like, well, what's John you talking about? Which one? It's like, oh, you know, well, come to find out, the other John was a Catholic, and I was Baptist, right? And so they started referring to him as St. John and me as John the Baptist. <laughs> and it worked. When you said John the Baptist, everybody knew you were talking about me. When you said St. John, everybody knew you were talking about the other John. And, and, it was, and that kind of became our group name. You know, it, it brought cohesion to the group, right? You know, you know what I mean? It, it kind of becomes your name. And what's really cool about this is that we see some of this in the names of the apostles. We see some of that group cohesion, some of that kind of group fellowship just in what they called one another. Like, for example, Simon who is also called Peter. He's called Peter. Why? Because Jesus gave him that name. It means rock. But there's also another Simon in the group. He's called Simon the Zealot. And we'll say more about him in a minute. So there's got to be some differentiation between the two guys. So one guy is called the Zealous One, and one guy is called the Rock, right? By the way, my goal in life is to go by the name the Rock. <laughs> He's... It's just everybody I know who goes by the name Rock is just really cool. So, but anyway, you know, you see, uh, you see Andrew, his brother. You see James, the son of Zebedee. You go down, you see James, the son of Alphaeus. You know, you see uh, Philip and Bartholomew. We, we don't know much about Bartholomew. In fact, we don't even know his name. We don't even know his name. Bartholomew is a nickname. A lot like Barnabas, or I mentioned Joseph from Acts, two, from Acts 1 a second ago. Uh, Joseph had another name. His name was Barsabbas, right? Bartholomew is actually a nickname. It means son of Talmai. And we don't know exactly what that means. And we don't know why they called him that. But my suspicion is that Bartholomew is actually Nathaniel from John chapter 1, that we meet in John chapter 1. 
And so just kind of cool. Uh, Bartholomew, you see, uh, you go on Thomas. By the way, Thomas is a nickname. The word Thomas means twin. And John alludes to this in, in uh, John chapter 21, I believe it is. And Thomas, who is called the twin. So Thomas had a nickname. And, and we don't actually know what his name was. You go down and you look at, um, at the dais. Who was the dais? This one's really interesting because if you look in Luke's list of the 12 apostles, you come across a name, you come across a guy by the name of Judas, the son of James. Now I say Judas, who do you immediately think of? Right. You ever wonder why he changed his name? <laughs> right. And so, uh, in fact, John even shows an awareness of this whenever, um, whenever um, he was talking about in the, in the Last Supper, he mentions Judas, and he has to put in parentheses, not Iscariot, right? And so there was a concern that this Judas would be confused with Judas Iscariot, and so therefore, he, changed, he started going by the, the name Thaddeus or the Dias instead. So pretty cool, right? Uh, by the way, James is also known, James the son of Alphaeus is also known as James the Younger in Mark, in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. So apparently this James was younger than James the son of Zebedee. You say, Randy, I mean, this is interesting, but what's this got to do with the price of beans in China? Here it is. I want you to see that these guys are not superheroes. I want you to see that these guys are human and they function as a group just like every other group does, right? Just like in theater, this, you know, John the Baptist kind of became my, my name as a part of this group. It created cohesion in the group. It created teamwork in the group. And that's what we see developing in these 12 men. They, they're becoming, co they're operating, they're starting to work as a cohesive unit. And that's exactly what the church is called to do. We're called to, to come together and come to and, and be together and be united to one another. And these are just some demonstrations of how this first century 12 men did this. These are not guys with superpowers. They're regular guys. And they're functioning just like every other group does. Only there's something else. And this is quite amazing. I mentioned Simon the Zealot. And there is a chance that it means Simon, just the zealous one, like he has a zeal for his faith. But more than likely, what it's referring to is a political party that existed in Israel at the time. And these guys were the revolutionaries. These guys, they wanted nothing to do with the establishment. They wanted to burn the world down. They wanted to kill Romans. In fact, the infamous assassins known as the Sycari, the, the dagger assassins is what they were called uh, in Israel. They were affiliated with this group. They were part of this group. They wanted to kill all the Romans. They wanted to throw them out. They wanted to start all over, burn the world down and rebuild. And Simon was more than likely previously a member of this group. And that's why he's called Simon the Zealot. And yet at the same time, you also have up here, Matthew, the tax collector. And I think we see a little bit of Matthew's humility here. 
But I think we also see something else because we've talked about tax collectors before, how they were, they were basically agents of Rome. And you have one guy who's literally wanting to kill Rome. You have another guy who sold his soul to Rome. And yet under Christ, they're coming together. And it's just an amazing picture of the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. It's an amazing how two people who come from completely different, I mean, you think Republicans and Democrats fight, you've not seen anything like zealots and tax collectors. In fact, if there was anything that all the parties agreed on, Herodians, uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, zealots, if there's one thing that they all agreed on is that tax collectors were scum. But the zealots especially And yet here, Jesus in his infinite wisdom brings a zealot and a tax collector together for the cause of the kingdom. Beloved, when we are united, the gospel is powerful. The gospel is powerful. But when we are divided, the gospel loses its power when we're throwing mud at each other and when we're complaining about this and complaining about that and griping about this and griping about that, you know what? We just got over all that with election season. And when you're doing stuff like that, people see you as no different from the world and they learn that the gospel has no power in your life. But I never will forget I was sitting in a, I was, I was attending a lecture on the future of Israel and there was a guy there who was a guest speaker and I just happened to notice it said former, uh, I can't remember which one it is, the, the, the aggressive Muslims, the, I wanna say it's Shiite, but I'm, I'm not sure, I always get them confused. Maybe it's Sunni, but, but basically fundamentalist Muslims, okay, a terrorist. And I thought this was interesting. And he got up and spoke on the future of Israel, God's people, and he was talking about uh, how he was converted from a former Islamic terrorist to now a, a believer in Jesus Christ. And he was talking about his love for the people of Israel. And I remember thinking to myself, here in this room, we have Jews, we have Americans, we have, uh, there was actually a friend of mine over there that was from Germany. Uh, there was a couple of other different nationalities and we're all sitting in this room listening to this former Muslim terrorist talk about his love for the people of Israel, a love that we all shared. And I thought to myself, only Christ can do that. And if Christ can do that, can he not resolve all our little petty differences? If Christ can do that, what else can he do? Can he not solve all of our racial divides? Can he not solve all of our economic inconsistencies? Can he not solve, can he not bring a people together in himself? He has done that in these 12 and he has done that in us. Christ has united us. I love Ephesians chapter four, verses four through six. That says here, I love these, these, these unities that Paul gives. Look what he says. He says, there's one body. That's the church. Where is the church born? In one spirit. So you have the Holy Spirit here. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. 
And then we see the work of Christ. He says, one Lord, that is Jesus Christ. How do we respond to him? By faith, there's one faith. And how do we express that faith? In one baptism, we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We see the work of the Son, and then he goes on into the work of the Father, of one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Beloved, we who are in Christ, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, in all, through all, and of all. He has brought us together, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, verses 12 and 13, for just as the body is one and many members and all the members of one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Look what he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Beloved, when you were baptized, you were baptized into one body, united in Christ, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. In Galatians, he talks about men, women. He talks about barbarian, Scythian. We are all one in Christ. And he has brought us all together. He has united us in order to expand his kingdom. Beloved, one of the worst things we can do is anything that disrupts the unity of the body. Oh, beloved, guard the unity of the body. Understand that when we cause division in the body, it's not just an assault on the one you're in an argument with, it is an assault on the gospel itself. That's why God takes it so seriously. It's an assault on the kingdom. We cannot be both effective evangelistically and divided at the same time. We just can't. One church, guard our hearts, guard the unity. A, div a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It will not stand. But we will see the power of God when we are united for something bigger than ourselves, when we are united for the kingdom of God and the gospel. That's when we'll see the power of God. We're not doing it alone. There's no way we can do this on our own. You can't bring a tax collector and a zealot together and expect them to get along. You remember when you were kids and you get in a fight with your sibling and your, uh, and your parents would say, you two get along. Worked every time, didn't it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> you two just hug. I don't know what's... Uh, I don't, I don't know what's so magical about that little hug that uh, we expect our kids to give each other right after they're and they're, when they're fighting, but, uh, but we do that. And we do that in the church sometimes too. There's no way we can do this on our own. And so that's why we see, going back to verse one, we see that we are empowered as they were. We are empowered as they were. Go back, it says, he called to himself 12 disciples and gave them authority. I don't want to belabor this point. But he says here, he didn't just summon them together. He didn't just summon them together and then say, go get them, tiger, and leave. No, look what it says. He gave them authority. And I want you to see that some of your, especially the more the older translations, if you're using King James or New King James, it, it says it gave them power. And what I, I want you to understand that the idea of authority here is probably closer to the original, but understand that power is part of authority, right? Because if I give you the authority to do something, then 
then by extension, I'm giving you the authorization, the power, you might say, to do so. I'm giving you the ability to do so, right? And that's what Jesus is doing here. Incumbent in this authority is also the power to do what Christ has called them to do. And so there is an authority, an authoritative power here. This is a big moment because up until now, we have seen the power of Christ and he has healed and he has cast out demons and he has done all of these things, but he's done it all himself. Now he's delegating that authority to the church. So how do we apply this? He gives them authority to do what? Two purposes. Number one, cast out demons. Number two, to heal every disease and every affliction. Boy, this verse is often misunderstood. So let me, let me just camp out here for a second. Does it mean that every disease and every affliction is caused by unclean spirits? No. The grammar does not allow for that. The Bible is very clear over what is sickness and what is demonic activity. The Bible knows the difference. This is not just ancient superstition here. And so the grammar does not allow for this. But there are others who also, they wanna keep applying this text in kind of a surface way to promote their theology and such. I mentioned that church in Branson and what they would do is they would take this verse and they would say, you see right here, the church has authority to heal every disease and to heal every affliction. And if you're not doing that, then you're not preaching the gospel. And this is where a little context And a little theological foundation will go a long way. Go a long way. Because notice how God words this. He says to heal every disease, to cast out demons, and to heal, right? Heal every disease and every affliction. But those two purposes, to cast out demons and to heal, right? And what have we seen all through Matthew chapter 8 and 9? We've seen this over and over again. We see people who are being healed of diseases and affliction, and we see people who are are being exercised, that Jesus is casting out demons. But do you remember how we said we can sum all of that up in just two words that we find in Matthew chapter nine, verse 36? And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion with them. Why? Because they were harassed and they were helpless. And you see that connection, how this is all coming together, that they are harassed and helpless in their context. That is being expressed through demonic activity. That is being expressed through these, uh, through these sicknesses and diseases. And Christ sees them. They are harassed and helpless. And now he is giving his apostles the authority and the power to go out and answer that harassment and answer that helplessness. And so it all connects together. And so what does this mean for us? Does this mean that we've given the, been given the authority to heal every disease and every affliction? I mean, so should some of you come up today and up on, the, up on the stage and I blow on you and you fall down or something? Should I be doing stuff like that? Have we been given the authority by Christ to provide healing for every disease and every affliction? My answer may surprise you. Yes. Yes, we have. You say, wait a minute, Randy, how? Because look at Revelation 21, chapter four, uh, verse four. What happens at the end of time? What happens when our salvation is fully realized? 
What happens? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain. How many of you are in pain this morning? All of that will be wiped away. And all of that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beloved, I want you to understand something. We are saved to this hope. And, in, and on this side of heaven, our salvation is not fully realized, okay? So our salvation has begun. It's already, but it is also not yet. It's not culminated. We're not going to realize the fullness of our salvation this side of heaven. We have the first fruits. We have the guarantee of the Spirit. We have the promise of our inheritance, but the fullness is still to come. And the fullness is going to be realized when we see Jesus Christ face to face and he creates all things new. And that comes through the gospel of Jesus. And what is the message that we are given to give to the people of this world? The gospel of Jesus Christ that will not only result in their salvation, of their soul, the full salvation. It will be fully realized. Beloved, you today who are walking with canes and walkers, you will not do that in heaven. You will not have that pain in heaven. You will not have mourning in heaven. You will not have any of those things in heaven. When Christ comes and all is restored, everything is made new. And that's the hope that we preach. Is it gonna be fully realized this side of heaven? No, but let me ask you a question. Do you want it to be? Heaven is gonna be all the much sweeter for all the pain we endure on this earth. Just imagine how great it's going to be. Beloved, the hope of salvation is that this world is as close to hell as you're ever gonna get. That's the hope of salvation. Beloved, here's the thing. Our salvation has begun. The Spirit guarantees our hope. And one day when we see Jesus, he will bring our full salvation. Don't let our fear of the word of faith, prosperity gospel cause us to ignore this fact that the lame will walk, the eyes will see, the blind will see, all of that will come to fruition. Christ will heal every disease of his people. But you know, what's, you know what's so wonderful about it? I have a friend named Justin Peters. Some of you know him. He has a podcast and he's, he has cerebral palsy and he cannot walk. You take away his crutches, he, he goes down. And he talks about this, how... How, yes, physical healing is included in the atonement, but it will be fully realized in heaven, not here. And he says, and I love how he says this. He says, I will walk in heaven. I will leap in heaven. I will jump in heaven. I will run in heaven. He says, but you know what? My eyes are gonna be so distracted by the glory and beauty and wonder of my Lord Jesus Christ that it's not even going to occur to me that I am standing on my feet. I won't even notice because my eyes will be on 
Jesus. That's the promise. So beloved, the base idea of what we have here in this text, the basic idea is that Jesus has given us authority and power to confront the entire gamut of human suffering through the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he has given us to do. And so Christ called the apostles. He gave them authority and power to bring the kingdom to a lost and dying world. And like them, we are called, we are united, and we are empowered. And so how can we capitalize on this? How can this become a reality in our church and I don't think you can really do any better than just looking back at the above text, verses 35 and 38. And just to review some points we went over a couple weeks ago, just just to stir you up by way of reminder, just number one, enter their world. Enter into the world. It doesn't mean you go on a mission trip. It doesn't mean their world might be what is, what is the latest video game you're playing. It might, you know, Hannah's world is how is, how is band going? You know, you just played your baritone. How's that going? And tell me about it. What, what's it like? Their world might be what's happening on the football team or what's happening on the basketball team or whatever. Enter their world. Get to know them. Find out where they are. Paul says, I become all things to all people that I might win a few. And secondly, develop compassion for them. Develop compassion. Get to know them to where you know what it's like to walk in their shoes. You know what it's like to be where they are. And then number three, Apply a biblical understanding. Look what Jesus did. He looks out on this crowd. He sees that they're, they're, they're harassed and helpless. But what's the real issue here? The real issue, scripturally, is that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Psalm 23 is not their reality. They are, they are lost sheep. That's the problem. All the harassment and all the helplessness, that's just the symptoms. The problem is that they've strayed from their shepherd. They're separated from their shepherd. And then when we see that, what do we do? We offer Christ and his answers. We offer Christ and his answers. Beloved, maybe there's someone this week that you can enter their world. You can start to get to know them more on just a surface level, more than on just a, uh, you you can start to really get to know them, really understand them, who they are. And as you do, you'll develop compassion for them and really understand how you can understand what they're going through, how the scriptures talk about it, and then offer Christ and his response to them. That's the way that we can become, we can set this goal into reality in our church, enter their world, develop compassion, understand them biblically, so we can offer them Christ and his answers. Maybe you're here this morning and that's exactly what you need. I would love to share that with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for these wonderful men that you both appointed and inspired to give us the written record of your work on earth. Lord, I pray during this Advent season, perhaps... There'll be an opportunity as we listen to, 
as we hear someone humming a Christmas song, and maybe we can ask them, do you understand what that song is saying? Just like Philip did. Or maybe there's other ways we can see, we can see whatever it is. Father, I pray you wouldn't make us in your image. And part of your image is that we will go into a lost world and impact it for your kingdom. However we can do that, I pray you would help us to do so. I wanna ask you to stand this morning. If you're here this morning and maybe you're, maybe you're here and, and something has been stirred up within you, you know that you need to respond in some way, I'd invite you to come. I'm just gonna ask everybody to bow their heads for just a moment, close your eyes. As our musicians play, I'm just gonna ask, maybe you're here and you need to know Christ. You need to know his answers for you. Maybe you have Christ, but you've got a circumstance in your life that you need his answers for. Maybe you're here and you need to respond to Christ in salvation, or maybe you have received the word, but you've not confessed it in baptism. Or maybe you've done those things, but you need to join a church, become part of a community. God called the church. He didn't call Lone Rangers. Maybe you need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Whatever your need is, would you come this morning?